Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. We're going to keep doing two podcast episodes a week, and we're going to start each episode with the latest on coronavirus news and questions you might have with my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, who's a medical analyst for CNN and the co-host of the podcast Epidemic. Then we'll have an interview with someone interesting from the soccer world. Today's interview guest is American Jesse Marsh, the head coach at Red Bull Salzburg. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Hey there! We're recording this Thursday morning. I'm Grant Wall here in New York with my wife, Celine Gounder an infectious disease doctor who's a CNN medical analyst and the co-host of the podcast Epidemic. Things are kind of crazy right now. Uh, I'm on day nine of home lockdown. You just started doing your CNN appearances from home instead of going to the studio due to virus concerns. And to start, I just want to ask, how are you right now? I'm pretty exhausted. Um, After a couple weeks of you know, four, three, four hours of sleep a night um, and just being really worried for the people who I work with um, and what this is going to mean for them. It's it's a pretty exhausting experience. So I'll ask about the sports angle to coronavirus later, but first I just have some general questions about the latest news. It's becoming clear that here in New York and in other places around the country, there's already a shortage in some hospitals of personal protective equipment and ventilators. Why is this important and how bad is the situation? Well, personal protective equipment, um, I mean, that's what doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers use to protect themselves when they care for patients. I mean, this is a war setting. It would be like saying we're going to send our soldiers off into war without body armor, without um, bulletproof vests, without, you know, those kinds of protections. We're just going to send you with nothing. And that's literally the situation we are creating for our healthcare workers. How bad is the situation right now? Well, you already have hospitals that have run out of N95 respirator masks. Meanwhile, by the way, I know there are people who have them at home who don't need them who could be donating them for our use. Um, We already are hitting max capacity in intensive care units with patients on ventilators. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's already pretty dire, and it's just the beginning of it. So earlier in the week, you were saying that depending on how much physical distancing we had, the U.S. could go either way, either the flattening the curve way of South Korea or the scarier exponential curve we're seeing in Italy. As of right now, which way do you think we're going? I think in at least parts of the country, we are seeing exponential. I think uh, New York City is going to be like Italy, um, sadly. And I think that was unnecessary. But I think um, politicians on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, did not take this seriously enough and um, didn't act quickly enough. We're also seeing some evidence that younger people may be more at risk for coronavirus than we earlier thought. What's your sense on that? 
Well, we, we know that the mortality, so deaths from coronavirus are highest among people over the age of 70 in particular, but that doesn't mean younger people don't get sick. They may not die, but they get critically ill. Um, you know, ending up on a ventilator for a couple weeks from coronavirus is no minor thing. And there are long-term consequences to that, not just for your lungs, but also in terms of your brain, your cognitive functioning, a lot of patients who end up on ventilators and ICUs have some serious PTSD experiences afterwards. Um, so that's not something to take lightly. If an ordinary American right now is asking, what should my family and I be doing? What do you say? Take this seriously. Stay home, work from home, school from home. You know, I still hear people saying, well, how am I going to get work done with my kids around? I need to have a nanny around, you know, if you're privileged enough to do that. You know, the problem with that is that's not really social distancing still. You need to think about it as your family unit is a bubble. Nothing goes in or out of that bubble. And I think people really need to start taking that concept seriously and, and acting on it. And yes, it's going to require some sacrifices, but... Those are sacrifices that you need to be making actually for yourself and your family, for the American people, and, and long-term, really, for our economy. The only way we can turn around this disaster, both from a public health and economic perspective, is to really implement these social distancing measures. How long are we looking at those social distancing measures continuing? Well, it's hard to say. Um, again, a lot of that depends on how well people implement them. You can probably do that for a shorter period, the more strictly you do so. The less strictly you do so, the more this is going to um, be drawn out. Now, based on some of the modeling, based on some of the data, if you go back and look at the 1918 Spanish flu, probably you're looking at in the three to five month range of doing this really um, rigorously and then being able to relax some of that. Uh, probably you would still see some waves of reinfection transmission, I should say uh, transmission, um, not reinfection. Um, so you might see some of the subsequent waves of transmission, which would require um, some reinstitution of measures to tamp that down. Um, but I think the most intensive period of the social distancing, we're looking at probably three, three to five months. In the sports world, the International Olympic Committee continues to be resolute in saying the Olympics are still set to happen in Japan starting in late July. But we're seeing Olympic athletes criticize that stance, saying they currently can't even train due to coronavirus. What do you think of how the IOC is approaching this right now? I think it's reckless. I think it shows a real lack of care for the athletes as well as for the the countries around the world their people um you know this is not just a business um these are real people and just to wrap up what are you looking for in the next week here in the u.s what am i looking for i mean what i anticipate is things are going to get bad um what am i looking for i really hope that um you know, one major area where the average person could also help is if you have those N95 masks at home. Um, I know there's some local officials who are trying to figure out how to maybe collect some of those and get those to hospitals where they're really needed. Um, so think about that. 
and think about what you can do to help the folks on the front lines? So I want to thank you for everything you're doing to educate our listeners, to educate the public on CNN and through your podcast, Epidemic. Uh, We'll be back uh, in a few days, and uh, we'll talk about the latest then. I appreciate it. Great. Stay safe and be well. Now for my interview with Jesse Marsh of Red Bull Salzburg. This took place on Wednesday morning. Our guest today is Jesse Marsh, the coach of Red Bull Salzburg in Austria and formerly the coach of the New York Red Bulls. Jesse, thanks for joining me during a difficult time. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live. I, you know, I've been, I don't know. Do you, have you had people that have been more guests? I don't know. You know uh, there I, should be like five-time host kind of thing. There should I, be some sort of, yeah. I think you get a special jacket at some point uh, with, with the number five on it. Okay, um, good. But uh, just so everyone, I, I think most listeners know by now, but Jesse and I go back uh, quite a ways. Uh, we went to Princeton together uh, where I covered your Princeton soccer team for the Daily Princetonian school newspaper uh, like in the early 90s. That's so crazy. 30-some <laughs> years ago. <laughs> But uh, oh, man. Oh, yeah, man. We, we are old, but uh, we're also still in the soccer world, which is kind of crazy, too. Um, but uh, I mean, first off, just how are you and your family doing right now? Yeah, we're we're doing OK. So my, my daughter had uh, we we left my daughter in Leipzig for her last year of high school. Um, and she's finishing that up and she's going to go to college somewhere in the UK next year. Um, so over the weekend, we went and picked her up because we could foresee a lot of the closings happening here in Europe. So um, we're all here. Uh, we've, we've been in our house. So the government asked on Friday for everyone to, to stay at home and then they closed the borders. So there's been a lot of um, really good movement by the government here. You know, Sebastian Kurz is the chancellor in Austria here. And he's one of the youngest leaders in the whole world. He's 33 years old. And Austria has really handled this, this whole pandemic really well, I think. And there's between, you know, them creating some rules and some guidelines for the, for the people here to try to control the spreading of the virus along with the solidarity of the people has meant that I think Austria has a really good chance to be uh, one of the leading countries in managing this crisis. So we're hopeful that we're, we're in a good place. We've been uh, alone in our, our house, um, almost on quarantine here for, for about five days. And, and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing okay and, and we're healthy and sound and, and, you know, ready to face this crisis together. So is daily life basically shut down over there? I mean, here in New York where I am, they've closed restaurants uh, and, and to at least you know, dining in the restaurant, you can do takeout. Uh, but most things are closed here in New York. Is that the case over there? Yes. Um, since Sunday night, uh, they've basically closed down everything. So uh, the only things that are open are the grocery store, the apotheca, which is the pharmacy, the bank, the post office, and you're allowed to go to work, but you know, everyone is strongly encouraged to stay home and work from home. So for us, our last training session was Friday. Um, our guys have been given home programs. So a lot of them have treadmills. And if not, they, you know, they're, they're able to jog on the streets. So that's still okay to jog on the streets, but there's, there's a one meter distance 
that's required from contact from all people. So it's quiet. It's quiet, but I think, again, there's, there's a sense of community here. It's a smaller country. The people are, are very um, generous and kind and thoughtful. And, and, and again, I, I think Austria has a chance to be a leading country in this, in this crisis. What kind of contact are you having right now with your team? Well, we've had a few video conferences with, with our training staff and with our, the leaders in our club to, to determine what the next steps are for us. I've tried, uh, I've, I've made phone calls to our players in the last two days just to kind of keep in touch with them. You know, we have a lot of young players. We have a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-old guys from different countries that are living alone right now and it can be lonely and, and they're away from their families. So we need to make sure that we're checking in on them and making them feel like, you know, they're still taken care of, that we care about them, that they're not alone. Um, you know, it's only be the beginning, but uh, for sure we want to make sure that um, everybody still feels connected, uh, even though we're not. Right. Um, have you had any coronavirus cases at the club? No, we haven't. We had one quarantine in our league. Um, there hasn't been any, uh, in other, uh, I don't think there's been any in our league that has been announced. There's been a few in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, where teams have been quarantined and obviously around Europe. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully we, we've been, you know, the country will be able to be on top of this before it gets too out of hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to know much right now, obviously, but sort of as of right now, what are the plans for your league season? So they're actually, so UEFA had a ruling yesterday that the Euros have been postponed a year with the idea to give all of the leagues here in Europe a chance to finish. If we don't finish, then there's a whole bunch of legal implications in terms of promotion relegation champions league europa league champions of the leagues so it's unclear as to if we're unable to finish the league exactly the direction that uefa will go will they will they just cancel the whole league will they um leave the league as is right now um you know how will they try to finish what will happen with europa league and champions league um so as of right now we're scheduled to play april 5th but i think everybody knows that that's that's unlikely very unlikely so I, I i would guess best case scenario is that we can start up again our league sometime in may and wrap it up before uh the end of june okay um obviously you've had an eventful season uh to put it mildly um you guys you guys had a memorable champions league group stage great performances or in good performances against liverpool and napoli uh, you were dominating the Austrian league that in January you sell Erling Haaland to Dortmund, to Kumi Minamino, to Liverpool, and and wins have been harder to come by since then. Uh, how have you experienced this season and, and dealing with the player sales in January? Yeah, so, you know, there's a big learning curve here when you're, when you're in Europe and then specific to each league. Uh, I learned a lot about the German Bundesliga last year and, and, how, and then also working in Europe. But now I've been a head coach and, and working in the Austrian league. There's a few things that are different than, than the German league. Um, our winter break is a lot longer. There's a lot, it's a lot more of a selling league. So there's potential for you to lose more players in the winter, um, which also means that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it can feel like starting over again with a new team. 
we have also uh, a division in our league. After we play one round, we divide the league in half. And the, the top teams play against each other for one more round. And the bottom teams play against each other for one more round. Um, so uh, that we actually finished uh, our, our first part of the league. And now we're, we're ready to move into the second part. Points get halved. The six, top six teams play against each other home and away. So that's 10 more games. Right now we sit three points behind Lask, who's a good team. Um, you know, and then the other challenge that we've had is, is, you know, going into the Europa League phase, we only played, you know, really one competitive game before, before we played Frankfurt and, and, you know, we, we weren't quite ready for the standard of what the game was going to be in Europa League and, and the first game in Frankfurt, frankly, we were terrible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a young team. There's been a lot to learn. There's been a lot for me to learn. Um, and the tough part is, is we, we, we went through some tough moments in February and we really came together as a group and challenged each other to get better. You know, we, we honed in on a few things and then we really started playing, to, playing really well in the last two games and then the league stopped. So, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an incredible year, uh, a, a big year for me for learning and, and, and continuing to try to apply my leadership principles and, into how things operate here in Europe. And then there's been some great successes and some big challenges. Uh, but that's why I came, you know, <laughs> that's why I came here was for all of those things. And, and in the end, it's been incredibly rewarding, incredibly rewarding. You know, the last time I saw you in person was in Liverpool uh, when you guys had that wild Champions League game, the 4-3 game um, earlier. I guess that was, what, early October. And when you look at that experience, that whole Champions League experience, you also, I'm not going to use the word viral now because that <laughs> carries other implications, but you, you had a, a video that that became that went out everywhere and you got recognized and like your your name is known in european soccer a lot more today than it was at the beginning of the season and i'm just wondering what that's been like for you yeah i don't uh you know i i'm aware of the fact that the video has made me um more of a public figure and and a little bit more known um, but it really hasn't changed, you know, the, the way that I go about uh, my work. And, and so for me, it's always about maximizing a, the potential of what a group is. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's my focus here every day. You know, we talked before about the fact that, you know, I speak German here. Um, I've really had to adjust to the culture. I've had to really invest not just in the players in the team but in a staff in the club in the fan base um you know in german uh, and understanding the culture and and try to adapt the best i can but still be so uniquely myself um and so in the end um yeah the 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 video scene from liverpool um i think highlighted some of the things that i that i do um in the end a coach is always judged by the success of his team. So, you know, that's why it's so important to focus on those things more than anything else. And that's what I, that's what I try to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Erling Holland is probably the most exciting new star in Europe. And uh, you had him for a half season. Uh, I'm wondering what you learned about Holland working with him. Yeah, he's a special personality. He, He's clearly an 
incredible talent. I mean, his athleticism, his speed, um, you know, they, it makes him, it, it, it right away puts him in the upper echelon of, of talents in our sport. And then when you add um, his desire to be successful, his mentality every day, his, his, the way he works at his technical ability, the way he works at his finishing every day, the, the, you know, how, how much he puts into trying to be the best footballer he can possibly be every day. He was different in that way than any player I've ever seen. He was the first one to show up, the last one to leave. He actually came back often in the afternoon to, to do more regeneration. Um, and he wanted, you know, he always wanted video. He wanted feedback. Um, he was always, you know, when you'd give him information, he wanted more. He wanted to apply it in the right ways. He cared about the team. He, he's special, you know. So right now he's dealing with a little bit of fame. You know, I, some of the things that he went through when playing against PSG and, and the way that PSG responded to some of the things that, that he put on Instagram and whatnot. So he'll have his challenges, you know, and he's only 19 years old and he's going to make mistakes. But in the end, his, his desire to be the best is different than anything I've ever seen. And I think a lot, that along with the talent will, will lead him to places that, that I think, uh, I, I've said this to you before, but I, I just believe that the ceiling for him is so incredibly high. How do you work with somebody who has that much potential, but obviously isn't the finished product? Well, I mean, this is, this is, this is Red Bull Salzburg in, in you know, in, in total. Um, Obviously, Erling is a, is a very special, but we're, we're, this is what we have are all, all these young 18, you know, it, what happens is the club scouts 15 and 16-year-old 16 players, brings them into the academy, brings them into leafering, creates a cooperation with that club, and then helps them uh, prepare themselves for the next step with Salzburg. Um, you know, I think here right now, we have maybe 15 players that, that will easily be able to sell in the next two years for at least $15 million or euros. So, you know, it's uh, so much of what I do every day is not just preparing the team to be successful as a group, but also grooming each individual to maximize their own potential. And often that's, that's as much about the person as it is about the player. And frankly, that's, that's the part that I, that I find the most engaging and the most interesting is is getting to know these people and getting to know you know their their strengths and what makes them tick what drives them um, how to use their their past experiences because often they're from Africa or they're from tough areas of of Europe um, and trying to figure out you know how to help um, identify their, their best qualities and really accentuate those things and challenge them to to be their best version of themselves every day and the more that we do that successfully then the more that the team comes together so you know it, it, it it's all the foundation is all about what are our principles of football you know what does the team try to achieve but once we establish that then it's so much more about uh fine tuning the individual's uh, uh abilities to to fit within the group and to be the best that they can be you know, uh, we had Tyler Adams on the podcast, uh, who might also get the five appearance jacket before too long. Uh, he, he, he was he was on recently, uh, and he even talked about how you know obviously he's been he's dealt with injuries, but you know he's still you know he made his Champions League debut not too long ago. Uh, just such a, a a good player, uh, but he he did talk about 
having to adjust this year to not being with you. And, and I'm wondering from your end of this, how, how have you viewed what Tyler's been doing? Tyler just uh, extended his contract with Leipzig, um, you know, and, and are you still in contact with him fairly regularly? Yes, we are. We speak often. Um, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, be as close with him as I can be, but also give him enough room to, to manage this world on his, on his own. And he, he can do that. You know, he doesn't need me. Um, but, you know, I think it's important that he has somebody in his life that can give him the little reminders of, of all the things that, that make him different and make him special. So, um, you know, he went, he's gone through a really tough time for six, for at least six months, he was injured. And then coming back, it's also a testament to, to his ability and, but also to how highly Leipzig th- thinks of him that they, they put him in the lineup as soon as he got healthy. And, you know, he is, he is a good player. He is a special talent. You know, he is driven in ways that, that, that I think separate him from, from most other players. But he's also, you know, he's young and he still has to learn how to manage certain situations. You know, I, I, he's always, the thing that's always made him so, so great is, is that he's so brave and that, you know, he, the, the fearlessness of his personality drives his talent. And, you know, I could see by watching him play in certain moments, just coming back off of injury and, and trying to get that team going the right way, that he, you know, he was built with certain doubts and, and that, you know, uh, so we had one conversation and just uh, I tried to reiterate to him all the things that, that have always made him so good. Um, and then he's just gotten back again. Yeah, you're right. He got into his first game against Tottenham and, you know, they, because he's got positional flexibility, they've used him sometimes as a defensive midfielder, sometimes as a right wing back in a four and a three or five. So, you know, I think everyone knows that his best position is in the six, but because he's so versatile, you know, Leipzig's used him in different ways, but Tyler's got a big career ahead of him. And, and, you know, anytime that I, I think about my relationship with him, it's more about, you know, us enjoying each other, us appreciating each other, and then finding ways to always support each other. Speaking of U.S. soccer, um, I'm curious to know sort of how you've observed the meltdown that U.S. soccer as a federation had in the past week uh, and the this legal strategy that the federation had taken against the women's players in their gender discrimination lawsuit, which... You know, we have a new U.S. soccer president now, uh, Cindy Parlo Cohn, who's replaced Carlos Cordero, who resigned. Like, how have you observed all that over where you are? Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I've actually in Germany and in Austria, I've gotten a lot of questions from people um, about why is our women's national team so good, and my answer has always been it's because there's, there's two reasons for me. One is we consider them equals, right? There's in the U S there's equality is a big deal. Um, you know, for, for men and women, ethnic equality, racial equality, everything. It's very important to us as a society. And that, that has meant that a lot of these, these, you know, women who are on the national team started as girls with, with youth teams and, and youth soccer, youth girl soccer is so big and the opportunities to play youth girl soccer and sports in general are different in the U S than they are here in Europe or in any country around the world. And those young girls had 
role models to look up to. They had those women on the national team. It started with Mia Hamm and it started with, you know, that group of girls with Brandy Chastain and, and, and uh, Julie Foudy and the, and the whole group in 1999. And I think that not only did they have the opportunity and the platform to, to be good athletes and, and to, to the opportunities to play at high level, but then they had the role models that they could have a future in this sport and that they could be something. And, you know, it's, it's been, it's, I think, a source of pride for all of us Americans that these women are so good. They're the best in the world. And, and frankly, they're heroes, you know? And, and, and I've been proud even when I have watched the women from afar and, and being here in Europe and, and talking about the, the women's national team. And then, you know, to see the lawsuit, uh, it's been, frankly, it's saddening and, and disgusting. First, that, that there's been a, a group of lawyers who think that, you know, who are educated people who think, have only thought so much about winning the case that they've totally lost perspective on what this group of women has done for, for people in our country. And to, to refer to them that way, to speak about them that way, I think is total lack of respect and, and intelligence of understanding what any lawsuit is about or what anything is about. And even more so, what's more egregious is that, you know, when I heard that there were people in the soccer house that hadn't read what the lawsuit was going to be, and, yeah. and, and maybe, that, maybe there are people that did, and they, they allowed for that discourse um, to, to, to happen for me is, is a total lack of leadership, a total lack of judgment, and again, for me, is frankly disgusting. So um, it, it's, it's terrible that... that you know, uh, these group of women who are, again, who are heroes and who are role models, right? And who I hope can find ways to be in positions of leadership as we go on with whether it's U.S. soccer or beyond, because I think a lot of them are equipped with, with a lot of leadership qualities. And it, and it beckons the question, where are the leaders in our federation, right? Where yeah. are the leaders in our sport? If, like, who is, a, how can we, especially after failing in the World Cup, to make the world cup now to allow this to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan. All right. And I think as a fan more than anything, I'm not a pundit. Okay. And I am a coach, but more so I'm a fan of us soccer. And believe me, this has nothing to do with Greg Berhalter. This has nothing to do with my desire to be the national team coach. This, ha this is a bigger question of who are our leaders and who is going to take the federation from here and who can we trust to actually now help the sport in our country become what we all want it to be. Yeah, and that's extremely well said. I, I, I'm curious to know what you would like to see, you know, and this is on the leadership side. Is there, are there any particular people you would like to see potentially get involved? So I was in the, I was in the U.S. pro course with Jill Ellis, and I consider Jill Ellis a friend, and I think she's, she's an amazing person. Um, she's an amazing coach. I, for me, she was the most impressive candidate in the entire course, and I'll throw, including myself. Um, she was very professional. Every time she had to speak to the group or present a presentation or whatever it was, she was incredibly on top of her material, and, and she was so sharp. Mm -hmm. And when we would discuss about the future of U.S. soccer, and this was right around the time where, the, where we failed to make the World Cup, my, my basic feeling was forget about forget about the actual X's and O's and what's going on in the field right now. What we need are, we need people that can stand in front of the U S soccer community right now and lead that 
and that's that's from uh, the 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 CEO of of US Soccer, the women's coach, the men's coach, the GM, whatever whatever positions you want to create. But we need a group of people that can stand in front of the U.S. soccer community and make us believe that we're working together, that we believe in each other, and that we're all in it together. Because I, I worked for U.S. soccer under Bob Bradley, and it was very divisive at that time, right? And it's only gotten worse. And this is from a fan base perspective. This is from a leadership perspective. This is from a player pool perspective across the board. And for me, that is the first step. Who are those people? Well, <laughs> what we're learning more is who those people aren't. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's not, again, in the end, what I, what I like the opportunity to try to help U.S. soccer in any way I can. And again, this is not a campaign to be the national team coach or to be the GM or anything. But the one thing that I would take very seriously if I were in any of these roles is how can I unite the football community in USA? How can I use this platform to, to unite U.S. soccer, club soccer, academies, MLS, youth national teams, men's, women's, everything combined? Because the only chance we have to really tap into our potential is if everybody believes in a common purpose and everybody works together. So, um, yeah. It's difficult right now, for sure. It's difficult. Well, I appreciate you speaking on that. I mean, obviously, what's happening in the world right now is bigger than sports, but we all care about sports and soccer, too. And uh, in, in times of crisis, you need leadership. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's in, in, in our government right now, right? It's the same. I mean, this is one of the things about watching the Austrian government and how they've handled the whole coronavirus crisis. And it's been so impressive. And I've said to the Austrian people, you should be so proud. You should be so proud of your government. You should be so proud of, of your communities because um, it's, it's an example for me of, of how people need to come together. My apologies for the abrupt end there. Jesse and I had some connection issues that caused that. But I'd like to thank him and Dr. Celine Gounder, as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.